0: Dear uh, the year of 2022 brought something usual to the European continent. That is uh, war and confrontation between nations. Let me be clear that the history of Europe is the history of wars and conflict. And uh, the whole thing erupted in 2022 because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It completely changed the continent, it changed its history, and it put us back into the notion of uh, what we want from history, from our own personal experience. So in this conversation with Vava, we discuss exactly that. We discuss uh, how to live through 2023 with the war unfolding. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And as always, enjoy. Do you have any expectations from the next year?
1: Um, you're asking me if I have expectations, does it mean, do you have positive expectations or overall predictions?
0: <laughs> Whatever expectations you have, <laughs> it um, goes uh, well in both directions.
1: Well, uh, in terms of positive developments, I don't see too many, I guess. Um, I have already saw this grim perspective in our discussions before. <laughs> um, Going back to the topics that we discussed about problems with differing interests over the world and uh, the impossibility of finding a settlement acceptable to different sides in international yeah. politics, I the expectations that I have is conflict, lots of conflict, and yeah. in various parts of the world. I guess most obvious being Ukraine, which you've already discussed, yeah. I don't see this conflict ending next year? What do you think?
0: (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) In short. Um, But, um, yeah, of course, but uh, it's interesting how the situation still plays out. And uh, I'm pretty sure we all agree that uh, this conflict is uh, one that will last uh, for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although I I don't think everyone thinks so. At least the people in the West certainly live in a dream world (laughs) but yeah it's it's pretty scary thought that we will have this conflict uh, going into the second year in a sense so how how do you see like any changes uh, in the conflict itself
1: from a purely military point of view first of all many people count and Hope, I
0: guess, many people will die. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's certainly true.
1: Um, But for now, for like more like shorter perspective, that is the coming winter. So I guess from right now until uh, February and March, uh, people, many people say that the conflict will die down and both sides will take a moment to catch a breath, to uh, restock their supplies, to let their soldiers rest. But um. I don't really know where this assumption is coming from. All the major wars that we have seen uh, in the previous 100 years, the fighting didn't die down during the winter. Some of the most major offensive of, wo- offensives of World War, II, World War II happened during the winter. Yeah. Uh, the conditions are harsher, of course, but I don't see why, for example, the Ukrainian army would stop pressing uh, having, for now at least, the strategic initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Resting now would not be in their interest. So I do expect the fighting to continue. I don't think the conflict will freeze uh, over the winter. But once uh, temperature starts going up again, uh, the ferocity of the fights will go up because the terrain will be easier to, to traverse, it will be easier to supply your troops. So the fighting will continue. It will be maybe less severe during the winter, but it will not stop. And certainly, I expect a bloody summer, because usually in wars, summers are the most bloody.
0: Yeah, and it's also, it will be the second year, so uh, in a sense, I guess both sides have some hopes and expectations that uh, something groundbreaking happening, but of course it's a very, probably protracted conflict uh, that uh, I mean, many other events, it's interesting how this conflict plays out vis-a-vis other events like in a sense uh, that it will be with us for a while, maybe even for like 5-10 years down the road. Yes, certainly. Um,
1: because you need to have some major political shift, uh, either in Washington or in Kiev or in Moscow, for the conflict to be resolved. Militarily, um, well, even if Ukraine expels all of the Russian soldiers from its internationally recognized borders... What next? Russia can continue bombing Ukraine for the next 10 years if it really wants to. So do we call this the end of the conflict, expelling Russian soldiers from Ukraine? Not really. It's just, I know, maybe not prolongs it, but...
0: time. But the, I guess the, the question is, for me, the only thing that gives precision to this conflict is the question of Ukrainian membership in NATO. So once you start thinking in these terms you will either end up in the world where like, Ukraine becomes NATO, or Ukraine doesn't become part of NATO in both um, solutions to this conflict. In the sense, like Russians are fighting so that Ukraine won't become part of NATO, and Ukraine is fighting and with the Western support. The West actively supports Ukraine so that Ukraine can become, become part of NATO. So in other words, it gives you these two different directions. And somehow, I think, in in a sense, it gives you a way much better resolution. Because when people say, "Well, like Ukraine sh must win," or like maybe people from Russian side saying that Russia must win, it's like, what does it really mean? I think eventually it, it comes to the question of uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO.
1: Yeah, exactly. When you analyze armed conflicts, you have to think of different stages. So you have the tactical stage, you have the operational stage, the strategic, and then you have the political. Yeah. Now, when we when we discuss, you know, Russians withdrawing from Kherson or I don't know, capturing Crimea, those are tactical or operational yeah. developments. But on the political level, when we analyze it, what are the goals of two different sides? So from the perspective of Kiev, the strategic and political goal is the survival of the state and preferably within its borders from before uh, 2014 that's the strategic yeah. and political goal of kiev and what is the best way to ensure it like you said nato membership yeah. then when we discuss about russian strategic goals and political goals is to keep nato out of ukraine yeah. so it's not really about uh if the donbas is part of the russian federation or not yeah. It comes down to a larger political and strategic discussions because whether Donetsk is part of Ukraine or Russia, it's on a lower operational or tactical level. The politics are more long-term. They're more pronounced, so to say. Yeah. And as you said, it in the end, it comes down to NATO membership. Yes.
0: Yeah. But also, it comes also... It, 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 it almost... Um, it passes the ball to NATO itself. Like whether NATO wants Ukraine... In, in its uh, to see Ukraine as a member while well, Ukraine is having a full scale war basically with Russia. I mean, in a sense, like whether I mean, it all I would say this question is like it's almost like an elephant in the room because it all comes to this question whether NATO wants to really fight like with Russia. Because eventually, I guess we all have this uh, understanding that almost from a historical perspective. Like the, the situation moves towards this direction, right, towards some let's say NATO Russia clash, whether it will be like a like a mild type of confrontation or a very serious one, I guess time will show. But something is is telling that there is like inertia, like moving towards this direction.
1: Well, I would say that we already have a NATO Russia confrontation. It's just that oh, NATO yes. isn't. Uh, the fact that there are no uh, NATO soldiers firing at Russian soldiers doesn't mean that NATO isn't a part of, of this conflict. Um, I would even go as far as to say that Ukraine wouldn't be able to resist Russia without NATO support being in logistics, supplies, and most importantly, intelligence. Ukraine relies so heavily, and finances, of course. Uh, Ukraine relies on NATO in so many ways right now, uh, so saying that NATO is not part of the conflict is just not true.
0: Yeah, but it's uh, also it's like this idea that whatever West is doing is uh, almost like fulfilling some type of illusionary rights. Like you know, they're trying to say that they don't do politics. Like whatever they're doing in Ukraine is not part of politics. <laughs> it's almost well, yeah,
1: <laughs> it definitely is. Even you know, from uh, even discussing. I guess let's go back from discussing NATO as just one single entity and go back to the interests of the member states. Uh, For example, let's let's take the eastern flank of current NATO, so Baltic states and Poland, etc. It's very much in the interest of these states to have Ukraine in NATO just for their own security. Why? Because if it ever comes to war, you have this huge country in between Poland and Russia that will be hit first in case of a Russia- russia nato war uh even going back 100 years josef piłsudski said poland cannot be safe without an independent ukraine so uh definitely the interests of certain member states come to play here especially the united states the further away we keep russia from its european sphere of influence the better maybe you have different nato member states that don't really care that much and wouldn't be so happy to accept ukraine into the eu or the nato so quickly i guess Germany being one of them. Um, I don't think Germany would support yeah, yeah. Ukraine NATO <laughs> membership anytime soon. Um, I mean, officially they do support. But do you really think that Germany would vote in favor of accepting Ukraine right now into NATO? I
0: mean, I guess Germany is in a very tricky position because it's actually smashed between like Poland on the one hand, the US, with a very pro Western position on the other hand, and Germany has to adapt. Like, in a sense, What what interests me in this type of situation, that whatever views were prevalent in, let's say, Franco-German circles before the war, they're almost gone. Or it's like, I mean, Macron tried to to play this card, like, you know, he tried to go to media and say that we have to find, uh, we have to address Russian concerns and then he like, got a backlash from all exactly polish and like baltic states
1: and even from germany the yeah, german yeah. foreign ministry <laughs> said that yeah putin had his security guarantees so like it's not time to guarantee anything so he got universally a uh, universal backlash i would say yeah, yeah. so i guess you have this um crisis time and wartime sorting into camps you had some ambiguity before the war and some like gray zone of uh you know political debate whether we should isolate Russia or integrate it into the European system or the global system. I think right now in the west uh it's mostly universally at least publicly acknowledged that Russia is the bad guy and it should be countered and every enemy and every enemy of Russia is therefore our friend, hence Ukraine getting all the support. But I don't think that it's in the interest of every single member state of NATO and I think that even the public declarations of all member states of nato are yes we want ukraine in nato i don't think i don't see uh, ukraine actually getting accepted into nato having a unanimous decision of all nato members to accept just look at yeah. finland yeah. to accept finland how hard it was to get Hungary turkey and they still
0: and they still um, the process
1: is still ongoing and yeah, and, yeah. and finland <laughs> is a far less controversial member than Ukraine,
0: but then I guess it's uh, it's the interesting question of how Turkey blackmails uh, poor Finns and Swiss, like so Swedish yes. people. It's it's trying... geopolitics, as you say. Yeah, I mean they're trying to you know you give us like those people. I mean, like to to a point that it makes it absurd that you know they have to hand in people who have like citizenship or at, at least asylum application in, in in like let's say Sweden, and they have to hand them in to a guy who is suppo- who who is uh, who is well known dictator himself
1: exactly and commits very <laughs> crimes against human rights so yeah,
0: but you know um emergency like you know uh uh i would say interesting times require like like extraordinary times require extraordinary measures <laughs> yeah. um that's right so uh, but that's but it still it gives you at least some type of uh Uh, If you want to talk about the future of this conflict and where where the conflict is going, at least it gives you some certainty. Because like when you discuss uh, just some abstract, like Ukraine must win or Russia must win, like you actually you actually lose the whole point of like not just certainty, but of any resolution. Because whatever you have is like super blurry. It's like you like no one can really even an official. You know, you ask whatever, whatever official you ask. They couldn't elaborate on what does it really mean for, let's say, Ukraine to win or for Russia to win. And I think it's uh, intentionally, uh, it's like, even though I would say from Russian side, it's intentionally vague, but like whenever you you kind of like try to understand it from more or less certain perspectives, I think like Ukrainian membership in NATO will be there in discussions. I mean, officially, of course, Russia says something that they must neutralize Ukraine, which basically means like prevent any Ukrainian involvement in NATO lines.
1: But you see that the narrative from the beginning of the war, which is almost one year ago, uh, which is is kind of scary to think of, but the original narrative of demilitarization and denazification, it's gone from the public discourse. Where was the? Where was the last time we heard Solovyov or Putin say denazification?
0: I think they do use it from time to time. You have to you have to follow in-depth Russian media cycle, but they do use it from for I guess internal consumption. They do. I mean, in a sense, because they still have to construct this enemy and they have to dehumanize Ukrainians. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's hard to, you know, I mean, it's, of course it's hard to explain to Russian people that <laughs> they have to fight the same type of people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean...
1: Yeah, this is this is, this is the, uh, I guess, the conundrum that the uh, Russian political system is facing. You have on the one side to justify this war, which involves dehumanizing the opponent, and on the other side you have the narrative that these people are essentially Russians, but they have been misguided by foreign powers and manipulated. Yeah. And how do you find a balance between these two narratives that are in theory mutually exclusive
0: yeah and i I think it's it's very hard i guess to see those same type of cities being destroyed and being uh, thrown into but being thrown into modern type of warfare almost like from a 20 years ago it would be like a game (laughs) but it's a real life and it's, it's of course it's like really hard to see that same type of cities i mean same type of cities smolensk or Volgograd. I don't know. And they they are part of warfare now. <laughs> like, you know, they are not like some um prosperous cities anymore, but they're like cities like that lead through warfare. And I mean this is like and if you, of course you see like those this um um perception of people in in Donetsk or like let's say in um um in yeah in, in this like region is, uh, is the same as uh, like the micro level of life is almost identical to people in Russia. And this is like the, the hardest thing to realize.
1: Yes. But the political circumstances still affect the psyche of people living on both sides of the border. And um, I think, for example, well, I would even go as far as to say that the war actually crystallized the um, Ukrainian nation in Ukraine as a people because before I guess 2014 was the prime example of uh, the fact that Ukraine as a nation wasn't really that established it didn't know where was it was going it didn't know what, what what its place on the global scale was and this allowed Russia to essentially capture Crimea with no fighting disarm 20,000 Ukrainian troops on Crimea with zero resistance because Ukraine as a state was still new and still figuring out what it actually is. And I think that the Russian invasion yeah, yeah. actually like yeah, yeah. gave the state a purpose. It's just to fight Russians, at least for the short term.
0: But I think like the Crimea was a special case. I, I think Crimea was Russian, like in the sense like no one. Okay, like... <laughs> that's, that's actually like, I
1: will not dispute that the majority of people living there would pr- possibly prefer to be part of Russia. Yeah, but yeah. there were Ukrainian army troops stationed there.
0: Yeah, but this Loyal is... to the
1: government in Kiev.
0: This is um, and
1: they surrendered without a fight because the army was so disorganized and the state was in.
0: But this also actually leads you to a very wonderful example how this micro level connects to like a macro politics because even like you know in UN Charter itself there is a discrepancy between nations that want self determination and nations that, uh, I mean the the indivisibility of nation. So it's like there is like a, actually like a concrete contradiction. And for example, Americans used it in Kosovo. It's like, let's create the country as Kosovo. But there is the same thing in the UN Charter that says...
1: Yes. This is the idea of the self-determination of nations. Is, I would argue it's faulted. Because if you were to actually follow this idea to the letter, you would have like 5,000 states.
0: Of course. Uh, but the this the is world, like... In the world. Uh, this is the whole like in a sense like even even Russian claims could be legitimate because if you if you if you take examples from the past i mean if if there was something like a international court, not only the criminal court but political court that could like consider those cases like in a sense like of course Crimea was an example where you definitely you were having a like internal turmoil, you were having some form of like civil unrest and this part of like country said like that's enough <laughs> we don't accept this like you know we want to back to people who we know i mean they, they felt russian i think but because they spoke mainly like 96 percent of population spoke russian or something like this i mean they didn't want to continue living in this country again but back in the day even from people living in crimea of course it was a very uncertain where like this type of country is going Maybe it's going to complete civil unrest. Or maybe, as some researchers suggested, that Ukraine is a failed state. Like, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not going anywhere. It goes into this like, vicious cycle of, uh, kind of civil confrontation.
1: Yeah, the problem with Ukraine was that it was a country divided between, basically, along the uh, Dnieper River. Uh, country... In the East, you would have the majority of Russian speakers. In the West, more of a Ukrainian-speaking uh, nation. Um, but still, I'll, at least, this, this is obviously not based on any uh, actual research, but just from anecdotal and my own experience with people who fled from the war uh, yeah. to, to Poland, especially from the eastern parts. Uh, like Some people I spoke to, uh, one guy told me, like, you know, I'm from Kharkiv. I yeah don't even know ukrainian i speak only russian and here they come and they bomb my city and they say it's to protect me and he said well it's just bullshit like i don't buy it like i'm here to make sure my family's safe i'm just going back to join the ukrainian army and fight them because they're bastards
0: yeah so
1: i don't think that the language lines are as important right now as they were in 2014
0: As we already know from our previous discussion, also like similar culture doesn't imply any type of friendship. Exactly, yeah.
1: it may be very easy to divide.
0: <laughs> that, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's true. But it also like it makes me think that it's uh, Ukraine was kind of like put into this uh, type of ambiguous situation where it had to choose between, like you know, European Union. Which I mean, European Union. I guess it's it's a perfect example of division like, you know, because you have this uh, um, pretty racist uh, alliance of states that, you know, says to other states that they're not like normal states and it tries to impose on them that, you know, if you want to have a visa-free agreement, you have to have, like, you know, have to allow gay people to exist and blah, blah, blah. I mean, all sorts of kind of, like, ambiguous stuff. But, I mean, in, eventually they do divide people because people from Moscow right now, they just simply couldn't go to the European Union. It's not like there's something wrong about people living in Moscow, but, um, like, you know, the result of this policy is pretty clear, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah, so I guess this is um, geopolitics in action.
1: (laughs) Definitely, you cannot escape from
0: it. Yeah. Uh, And I guess that's, uh, yeah, this is, uh, so probably we will just live through this conflict the whole year again.
1: (laughs) I I really think that it will last for the entirety of the next
0: year. Yes, like the, the point to discuss is the possibility of escalation that we sort of experienced a couple I mean it almost goes in the cycles that there is a point when something goes like I mean the, like of course if you think about from escalation type of perspective there are many ways to escalate
1: yes I guess that, that's exactly what I wanted to ask <laughs> what do we define escalation what venues of escalation do we have
0: I guess it, it it really depends like if you think about this year um for of course for from also from Russian perspective the easiest way would be to choose the path of uh, direct NATO Russian clash like whenever you whenever you define it whether it's just uh, simply maybe attacking bases in Poland because you know they transport weapons to Ukraine and justifying it like this or maybe, of course, the hard, 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 hardcore scenario would be just like to entering Baltics. Because probably you could just enter Baltics. I mean, people who fight wars, I guess you would probably, you could never guess like whatever whatever like, type of precision, you know, like you know, they, they should think in very precise terms. I think like, you know, there is something, the possibility of just entering Poland. Uh, no, 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 sorry entering baltics like you know just because because there is nothing no one that they could that could like
1: yes that's certainly on the in the military terms um if russia wanted to capture baltics uh russia could probably do so like 100 times easier than uh conquering ukraine it's simply because it's a way more terrain but the consequences might be worse for russia why because you actually do have nato troops there and i don't say that the nato troops that are present there would stop russia they would not but if russia wants to capture baltics russia has to kill german soldiers russia has to kill canadian soldiers russia has to kill american soldiers russia has to kill polish soldiers now imagine any any of politicians from this country imagine them running for re-election without avenging the deaths of soldiers killed by Russia. Americans invaded the Middle East because of one terror group striking, performing one terrorist attack. I do not see a world in which America does not react when American soldiers are killed by the Russian army. There's just I don't see this possibility, and I think.
0: But that's uh, like puts Americans into the shoes of uh, decision makers because that's what they're saying in terms of well, if Russia strikes. Ukraine with the nukes, I mean, they have like this deterrence uh, logic or deterrence fairy tale in a sense that they would strike back them, with, like they would strike them back conventionally. Yes. Which in, in fact, for me, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that they will strike Russia. Because I mean, uh, from like people in Washington, they should realize that's that's uh, escalation. Escalation to the point when you you're ready to put people living in Los Angeles the risk of like nuclear annihilation for the Ukraine like which is again like from strategy type of perspective I mean not Ukraine is not like that big of a deal of course maybe from perspective of uh, like very mega grand things uh, if you allow Russians using nukes that would be a big deal maybe like from this type of perspective but it's still hard to believe that they will strike Russia conventionally.
1: I honestly don't think it's such a hard thing to imagine.
0: Yeah, but then it, it leads to this... Uh... It's almost like a
1: domino. It is. I mean, yeah. the problem with nuclear deterrence is that nukes are basically like holding hostages. They're only valuable as long as you have them and you don't use them.
0: Yeah.
1: Once you use the nuke, you have no bargaining power because people have already died. Yeah. So I can totally see why nato might think that it can go unpunished striking russia conventionally because russia has no way to respond uh, in the same uh, capacity what do i mean so if nato strikes russia just using conventional weapons and let's say no knocks out the strategic arsenal of the land uh forces of russia okay this happens russia cannot do the same back with conventional weapons the only choice Russia has left is to use nukes against the West. Yes, but Russia knows that if it uses yeah. nukes against the West, the West will use nukes against Russia. So it's, yeah. this, again, the stability-instability stability paradox. I think that, yeah. that NATO would feel comfortable striking Russia uh, conventionally in this scenario, knowing that Russia cannot respond in the same proportion as with conventional attacks against the West. They could only use nukes, And Russian decision makers know if we use nukes against the West, we both die.
0: Yeah, but I think that's uh, the example of uh, like like the Western alliance, like using like even conventional weapons to strike Russian facilities. I think it's pretty hardcore one. And I don't know whether it's. um, I still I think it's um, it's it's not like exactly it's it's not like that precisely elaborated anywhere in the sense of, like, in, in military doctrine. Yes, that's true.
1: But see, also, so many people attribute to Russia that Russia has the policy of escalation to, escalation to de-escalate. But it's not written in any official Russian documents. It's not. It's on- Actually, it's only written in the French nuclear doctrine. The French have the idea of escalate to de-escalate. Russian official, official doctrines don't have this written... But didn't, then, like,
0: in Ukraine they, they definitely escalated? Oh, to yes. Certainly. <laughs> certainly, yes. <laughs> escalate, not with nukes. <laughs> not with nukes, I mean, but they esca- escalated to, in a sense...
1: Uh, um, I would also, um, in terms of Russia, in terms of using nukes, I would be wary of using nukes in Ukraine for one reason. Uh, because, well, I would totally believe that the west would give ukraine nuclear weapons if russia used nukes in ukraine officially not officially but just just give them two nukes and ukraine will say hey we have nuclear reactors we (laughs) produce these weapons ourselves and we are responding proportionately to russian aggression the west has clean hands and ukraine can respond in the same proportion i can totally see that happening
0: i mean in whatever like circumstances Putin uses nuclear weapons, he emphasizes the idea of it's like mutual assurance destruction. He never like really uses the idea of nukes as like you know I will nuke Ukraine. Yeah. I never I never heard him like actually saying those exact words. But when you read CNN, <laughs> it transforms <laughs> from mutual assurance destruction to I will nuke Ukraine. That's like that's a little bit like of course. Of Western type of like they they trying to portray him as a as a mad lad. Yeah,
1: and um, so far we haven't seen any actual indications that Russia would be preparing to use
0: nukes. Which, which for me is actually which was scary. It's like if you put yourself into the shoes of such a person who is ready to send, like you know, thousands of Russian, basically to the front instead of using nukes. It gives you actually a way much more ominous, like person to deal with. It's like you know, it's like if he, if he was ju- if he was just a mad person, he would use nukes. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a one type of uh, guy that with whom you are playing, but you are playing with a way much more strategic person, way much more nuanced.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the portrayals of Putin just being mad are completely wrong. He he wouldn't have stayed in power for so long if he was just dumb. Um, That doesn't, of course, mean that Putin does not miscalculate from time to time. Of course he does. Uh, But he definitely thinks rationally. Even if he miscalculates, he thinks rationally. So I don't think he would use nukes unless he really, really had to. That is, his power was somehow threatened. If the Ukrainian army was about to capture Moscow, for example. So they would totally use nukes. But for now, the Russia as a state is not threatened itself. For now, of course. We don't know how the situation will change. Um, so I don't see just doing escalation, going down the nuclear path. But I t- we could totally see Russia, for example, deciding to destabilize politics, playing on the, the card that it has, that is, for example, the very major Russian minorities in and uh, for example, Latvia and Estonia, um, basically, what they did in, in Ukraine, in 2014 is use un, unmarked soldiers without Russian flags, actually on the uniforms, yeah. staging uh, proclaiming yeah. exactly. the green the green people, exactly. Um, I mean, they have a basis and the, the capacity to do that for example, in Latvia. And they, say, and they could say, it, it wasn't us, you know, the Russians who lived there, they decided for themselves. 40% of Latvians are of Russian origin, they speak Russian. It's pretty easy to pull off. And I think this combined with a major disinformation campaign and, you know, sowing dissent amongst uh, the West, this could pay off. I think if Russia wanted to escalate or at least, you know, Put some thorn in an American side, this is the way they would go. I don't think they would openly invade the Baltics. But yeah. Doing what they do best, which is hybrid warfare. I think they could.
0: Yeah. There is certainly, it's a, it's a plausible scenario. It just, uh, the question is uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure to do this, they have to be v- like ready. And I don't think it happens when everyone expects it. So there is certainly. Even with Crimea there was a like there was a I would say the issue oh well, like yeah there was a surprise. I mean yes. no one no one really expected it. That's why it played out so well because no one no one, no one was expecting it.
1: And then suddenly
0: and that's why, it already happened thing.
1: And that's why the second invasion didn't work out so well because everybody was expecting it. The Americans were warning of it for the last few months. So there was no factor of surprise.
0: That's true. Um, but also,
1: I remember that actually the media uh, in the EU especially was calling the US alarmists, saying, Haha, oh, my God, you Americans are saying that Russia is going to invade. Oh, they haven't invaded for the th- yeah. past three months. You're just carrying us on. And they actually, they did invade. Uh, so there was no factor of surprise. Uh, actually, uh, judging from the information that we have available, the Ukrainians were aware that an attack is going to start at least like two hours before it started. So they must have gotten yeah. some information from Western intelligence agencies. And there was no surprise factor. Um, and here, if they wanted to conduct any operation in the Baltics, they would have to have the element of surprise, which means they could not uh, have a conventional military buildup on the borders of the Baltics. It would have to be some undercover but then it's, uh, and special operations.
0: The question, the, there is an interesting question whether whatever Russians wanted to do be pre-war was a type of, like, a um, diplomatic calculation. In other words, where there was, like, a threat to use the force, like, in the sense of, like, deterrence, even in in American sense. It's, like, the threat to use the force if you don't really give up to our claims, give up to our... Because, I mean, in a sense, they they send, like, the, the official proposal, there was a diplomatic channel, there was a diplomatic type of conversations that we should, like, you know, put an end to this question of uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO. <laughs> it was, like, it's interesting to say, to to observe that whatever happened uh, pre-war was all about, like, Ukrainian membership in NATO. Because the Ukrainian claims to membership also escalated, also kind of drastically, in a sense, with Zelensky and uh, a few years of him in the office, because he... I guess just uh, just of course, 2021 pre-war period of time, they really started having those symposiums where they just like you know <laughs> brought up some Western experts, and they're just like, "Hey, what about Crimea?" <laughs> you don't recognize Crimea, right? Like let's get it back Crimea." <laughs> just like you know, type of like, these conversations, I would also think, of course, they, they would make Russian specialists uh, nervous. And uh, whether, like, whatever Russians wanted to do was the act of like intimidation, and in a way, they thought that it, it could play out, but it did not. So, they had to take actions at certain period of time. I mean, when Putin invaded, I guess he said openly that uh, um, the conflict is inevitable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in a sense, like, and uh, just the question who strikes first? Like, we are striking first because we are smart. <laughs> okay yeah so in a way maybe it, it it is like a
1: okay so yeah, I guess the initial calculation was exactly to escalate to de escalate that is you would have a relatively short period of tension, but once you have Russian troops reaching the polish border, like it's fait accompli like you 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 cannot do anything to, to potentially counter that so i guess of course the west would have would probably officially condemn this but there's nothing they could effectively do to prevent that uh, it didn't work out um ukraine put up a fiercer resistance than expected um but that was the initial rationale behind it basically to escalate to de-escalate to longer. well
0: maybe there was a rationale i mean in a sense maybe there was a rationale just to start a war I mean, I I, sometimes I think about like like of of course people like in the West especially underestimate Putin's and like Putin's logic and Putin's actions, and they think about like hey, like this dude miscalculated, but what if like this dude just simply like his idea was to start a war, his idea wasn't to end the war because if you if you think from perspective of a long term thinker like a strategist. You know, you just simply start this thing, and then, like, like you because, like, the war itself changes dispositions, it changes uh, everything in the system. It's like the world before the war is different, type of the world than the world after. But
1: is it the world more favorable to Russia?
0: Yeah. I mean, it definitely puts it into a certain course, into a certain trajectory. Because I, I would say, like, whatever trajectory was. Uh, in the system for Russia before the war, it wasn't that favorable. Because, I mean, Russia was not this, like, very... In the, in the type of situation that it was kind of trying to sit on both chairs, it wasn't really Western because it was already heavily sanctioned by Western powers, but it, it was still in the sense of, like, trying to be Western. It was still a democracy, like, you know, officially. Um, it was kind of, like, in this, like, weird... Place of uh, of like really like you know long term thinking was uh, like impaired like you know in the sense of like there was no long term thinking, but now it's it's more. I
1: I definitely uh, get what you mean. This is like basically Russia hasn't before the war. Russia hasn't decided what it wants to be. What it wants to have a blown-out confrontation with the West or accept uh, and basically concede to the West and go of yeah. the flow of the, the, uh, what the West would dictate. It was sitting on the fence. and yeah, That's certainly true that Putin definitely with his decision to invade Ukraine um, changed this and he set Russia on a very certain anti-West and confrontational path. Um, but I really don't think that anybody starts a war expecting it to last years. There's not a single war in human history where the people who were deciding to start the war were like, yeah, guys, you know, this will last for the next 20 years and millions will die. Everybody said, oh yeah, this will be a fast war. This will be over. We'll be back home by Christmas. And I really think that that was the thinking that Putin had, that, that this is what will happen. Um, but I cannot disagree with you uh, <laughs> saying so, that he decided on a course for a long-term course in, uh, for Russian history. And there's no turning back from from this decision.
0: I would I would rather say that uh, of course no one knows what Putin wants <laughs> when Putin thinks, but I would I would rather say I'll give up to this idea that he was a, like really strategic. I mean, of course, he had like a plan. But, you know, if he captures Kiev and Zelensky would flee, then of course suddenly like you know the whole affair would be victorious and very short one. And
1: judging from the movements of the Russian troops. Exactly what
0: they and also judging from the things that happened after I would say that he was also prepared for a long term conflict like in a sense like he because you put like countries I totally into disagree with you. like not. I would say because he, you put country under so much stress and you as a like you know as a decision maker you are sure that the country would sustain itself like you know you you, you think okay he he knew that they would impose sanctions. Uh, he also knew that probably the conflict would last for a while. He probably knew that, uh, you know, that he would be still in power. <laughs> like, in a sense, like, all all those things that, you know, how the conflict plays out after almost a year now, I mean, in a way, he, he should have predicted it. Otherwise, like, I mean, if he was some kind of, like, a... Uh, a roaster type of a dictator that, you know, probably he, he he thought he had the power to do it, but suddenly, no. <laughs> you know, the population said, like, you know, this is, like, a red flag for us. But, like, the population was uh, kind of, like, almost, like, in a state of shock for a while, but, you know, after a while, it's, like, it's almost, like, sure, let's do this. Like, you know what I mean? Well, just,
1: yeah.
0: No, because beca- I also think it's important because... Like, for example, he couldn't mobilize Russian population at the start of the war.
1: No, definitely not.
0: But, like, after a while, you know, he could.
1: But from a purely military perspective, if you prepare for a long-term war, you mobilize before. This is the problem that Russian army is facing right now. Russia has a very pretty effective design system to mobilize masses of soldiers, but why is it not? It was it, why wasn't it working when they first announced mobilization? Because the idea is that you have a cadre of trained officers and soldiers who, once you start mobilization, these soldiers then train demobilized the soldiers. You have professional, experienced uh, soldiers who train people who were pulled from their civilian lives. And right now, what at least initially what happened, I guess Russia is correcting for this right now, was that. You had mobilized thousands of people and who's to train them. There was yeah, nobody is, to train them because everybody was on the front.
0: But this is, this is exactly like the brilliancy of the move. Like if you think about it. I,
1: I disagree. It was brilliant. No, but like, I think it was a miscalculation.
0: In a way, imagine like you, like in, even in January 2022, you, dec- you, you have a degree and you mobilize your own population for the war with Ukraine. I mean, like, even from back then, it sounds like the status quo was that, you know, Putin is a dictator. He's a very powerful person, and he could do whatever he wants internally, but there was still, like, a red flag in Russian society. And those red flags are that, like, you know, uh, you wouldn't, like, mobilize without no good reason. I mean, even in September, when he announced mobilization, there was still, of course, some... A little small backlash, but, like, very subtle one. But, of course, like... Once there was a war for a couple of months, and like you know, Russian people saw, oh, you know, those motherfuckers—they, they they fight with us. You know, we have to show him who is the boss.
1: No, definitely. It's like I I agree that radicalization (laughs) was there, and I think that yeah, I agree with you that Putin right now is pretty skillfully uh, exploiting and managing the uh, the overall psyche of the population. But I really don't think. That his original thinking was okay. I'm gonna start a war. I will let it drag out for six months, and then I'll be able to mobilize.
0: No, but I think like he was he his initial like plan was just to start a war, and then let's see. I mean, it's it's always he
1: did kind of in 2014. It was just frozen.
0: True, but like this is there was still no war. I mean, of course, like officially, everything was still more or less uh, in a very no 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 war conditions.
1: Well, it's, there's still no war. There's a special military no,
0: operation. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a war in Donbass, though. But I mean, there was no escalation. But like, I mean, that. But that, I guess it's important, just like if you if you really want to understand like international politics, you have to really ask like, what did he really want? And of course, I I do think I mean, just like my gut feeling would be that he wanted something bigger than. I mean, he he wanted some just a protracted conflict, probably, because I mean it could play out differently. But I, at least it solidifies his power. This is like it definitely does. So well, you
1: really don't
0: think he was to He he, I mean, but it was like a high win, high reward, uh, also like a lot of like high stakes, high reward type of operation. But I don't think he put all his uh, you know money on on it. Like he just like. It was okay if if this can if this can happen, it's good. But if it if it doesn't happen, we continue. I mean, like in a sense, like also it's important to think about that like the costs, like in terms of like human costs. They don't really matter for him, like quite literally. Like, you know, either from Ukrainian perspective or from Russian perspective. I mean, it doesn't really matter how much people how many people would it cost to to capture Kiev. I mean, it's not the question that like, this type of person would ask. It's like whether he can do it or not. Like, but in a sense, like, there was like, a moment, of course, he was probably really, you know, he hoped it, it could happen, but it didn't happen. But I think, yeah, I think he did have a plan B.
1: <laughs> For me, it's just hard to imagine. Uh, well, definitely you always need to have a plan B. But, uh, and I think that they really did have a plan B um but was it a uh, you know prot- protracted war for many many years i'm not sure especially just judging for example from the american uh announcements from the beginning of the war remember that on the first night of the war the americans said that judging from their analysis yeah. kiev will fall in three days yeah i the Americans said they offered to evacuate it, uh... the entire uh, ukrainian government but then even did, if the Americans thought <laughs> that the Ukraine will fall so fast, yeah, yeah. I think that the Russians thought so as well.
0: But then I guess it shows American type of uh, analysis because, again, the, the, he didn't have like two millions, right? Like, in other words, he had like 200,000 and he had intentionally... He had an attack from all the directions.
1: He, he,
0: he didn't like put all this 200 in... In the attack of the Kiev, he did attack from all the and I mean, yes, that's true. and the, the person who knows, of course, military history should understand, like you know, it's not possible, <laughs> and like again, like he probably there was some, again, like he, I guess, I would I would say like just one thing, mm-hmm. it's like when time passes and you look at people who say all this stuff about Putin and his thinking. Suddenly, at certain point in time, a long period of arc, like you know, like two, three, four years, like five years, like you know, pass. Like you just see that, like they were wrong. I mean, like you know, people who expected Putin to collapse in 2014, they were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. <laughs> people. <laughs> the
1: Putin will collapse
0: until his death. Yeah, it's, it's, but this is like you know the brilliancy, you know, because like there is something that like he. Understands that probably no one does. Like you know, in in the sense, it's like when you when you really observe this type of events after a certain period of time, you just like you know, he knows something. Like you know, he 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 is onto something, and like he, in the sense, like he he understands something that no one else does.
1: What is that? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Putin does understand this. Like you know, like what I mean. It's um, if you if you observe like a. Yeah, like comparing it like almost to like ethnology, and like you know if you observe uh, like a very beautiful very intelligent like a ship, like he definitely knows something <laughs> um, <laughs> i
1: I really think that Putin's rationale was in some ways parallel to the rationale of Japan in the 1940s when they attacked the Americans. Um, they basically thought that, okay, the Americans are encroaching upon us. Um, we don't have that huge of a chance to actually win, yeah. um, but we're going to do it anyway because it's our only chance. And I honestly think that that was his rationale, was yeah. I have to do it if I'm to preserve my idea of, you know, this Russian, um, Russia as a powerful state, as a very a key player in the international arena, and not somebody who... Uh, just, you know, wagons with the West. This is what I have to do. And um, he hoped that it would turn out perfectly and capture Kiev in a few days, but it didn't. Yeah. So he's working with what he has left. So a protracted conflict. But I really didn't, don't think that he, that he yeah. hoped, that he really thought that it will last that long. I guess he, he was ready, it might happen, but it was, you know, a plan B, not plan yeah. A.
0: Some reason that it was the whole initial plan, like to have a protracted conflict, and probably um it just for me hard to imagine. But again, again, like think about not like uh, internal, external. Like don't think about external events. Think about internal ones. You you make sure that uh, whatever you do, the country will survive and sustain itself. You have to have resources, also like from sanction perspective. You need to calculate. That your country will survive whatever sanctions you have, and I mean there were some uh, discussions and there were some like insights that people in like Russian Central Bank they two years before the war they calculated very extreme economic scenarios. It's like almost like to a point when Russia will will, will be cut would be cut completely Mm -hmm. from economy, like from world economy completely. Even now it's not the 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 same they they uh, the same way they calculated but that it would be cut completely from the world economy. So they, they still kind of had those plans, contingency plans for something big, like, you know, and that something big happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it, it puts, I, I would say probably when Putin started the war, he was pretty sure that he wouldn't end it. Like wh- whoever ends the war will, would be Putin. Probably someone else.
1: I honestly think he was thinking that he <laughs> will finish this war one way or another. I really don't think that he was ready for a possibility that uh, his advance is entirely stopped. Maybe he was yeah, thinking, yeah. okay, yeah, maybe we will not capture Kiev in one week, but in three months. Yeah, And you could see that they were trying for the first three months to really get into Kiev, but they finally said, okay, no, this is not going to happen. and they but, but, then,
0: but then again, the question, like, was he an idiot? Because if, no, if you, I don't hey, think so. No, no, Definitely no. not. In a sense, if you if you think that with two hundred thousand troops you could capture that big of an, uh, I mean, you could first a initiate this big of a conflict through this big of uh, um, confrontational um, line, so to speak, and you could, you know, in the same, like in the meantime you can like like succeed in this conflict. Then that's I mean, in a sense, that, like, if, if he really thought this way, uh, he def- was probably an idiot. <laughs> I
1: definitely think that the incompetency was on the level of Russian military, not yeah, yeah. political decision making. Uh, because the this strategy that the Russian military adopted uh, basically looks like it tried to resemble the American operations in Iraq, uh, but it just omitted a few key factors, like the fact that before the American invasion of Iraq, America bombed the country to rubble for one month, basically. Uh, and that's why they were able to do this basically right to capture the capital in a few days with very minor resistance. Russia did not do that, uh, even though the movements of their land troops seem to indicate that they want to duplicate the success of the Americans in Iraq. Uh, so, yeah, I think that Putin didn't, uh, wasn't an idiot, definitely. I think he just trusted his military commanders too much.
0: Yeah, but they all—all all, there is something in a way much more ominous that it's hard to comprehend. Maybe like you know, I mean, I know it sounds. This is like the whole, like, you know, you kind of move into direction of conspiracy theories almost. But it's still important if you ask yourself, like, this person probably has like very good information and he's smart. Like whatever smart you define in international relations, I mean, it's like whatever I say, it's like. Like, you people observe international relations. He does international relations. <laughs> <He> just <laughs> just shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, you know, like, he's, he like, the fucking player. I mean, again, it's, like, for me, it's, like, when you see Magnus Carlson playing, of course, like, he makes a blunders, and, like, computer shows, this is a blunder. And he's just, like, oh, he made a blunder, like, you know, go. Yeah, it's, like, he's a stupid guy. It's, like, no, you, like you you don't see the end of his game. Like, just, like, first of all, wait a little bit, and... Because I mean, again, like,
1: so, do you think that he has some end game and vision, and he's actually on the right track to achieve it?
0: I mean, I probably think his end game is just uh, to start the war, but not to finish. And this, I guess, gives you an idea. Because I mean, he is not an idiot. He wants to preserve whatever he created during this twenty period of time, and he can do it only by continuing this uh, war with the Western Ukraine. Or, or to be more precise, by continuing the war with the Ukraine and the West, and thus the West, he could envision the future of Russia that is non-Western. It's moving into some, like, you know, separate direction. And whoever comes into power, or wh- whoever is, like, his successor is uh, like you know, he he will have to deal with this conflict.
1: Okay, so as I understand your argument, uh, what you mean is that Putin said basically created a certain idea of Russia and put mm-hmm. Russia on a certain direction, a certain track.
0: Yeah. And anybody
1: who comes after him will have to continue his legacy. Yeah, yeah. And his politics, because there's no turning back.
0: Yeah, there is um, there is no turning back. They okay. only yeah,
1: that, with that I can certainly agree. In he definitely sense. preserved. Uh, put Russia on a certain track and he well he will be a major name in history books for sure.
0: Yeah like like a thousand years from now I mean he's like a Caesar. Like like the guy like the people would read like I mean would they read history books? Probably not probably some some information in their brain already <laughs> but they would know Putin and no one else basically. They wouldn't know Biden. Putin buys. <laughs> <laughs> they like who is Biden? Reagan, probably, yeah. But Putin, they would remember. Like, this is the guy who changed the... I mean, I I guess that's the difference between, like, he's a real actor. Like, you know, people... Some people just uh, read history. He makes history. (laughs) And this is, like, a very big difference. (laughs) True. Like, this difference that really is a bigger... I mean... I mean, again, and this is just... You need to... Um, pay a certain tribute to those people, you know, like in a way, not, not being like disrespectful to type of uh, deeds they do. True,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess we will leave through next year. Yes. Uh, and uh, come back next year. And <laughs> we'll see how
1: our predictions hold up.
0: <laughs> we just had only one prediction <laughs> so far
1: <laughs> that well, the war will continue. <laughs> hopefully, we will not have to record such an episode next year, sitting in a bunker, uh, you know, hearing <laughs> bombs fall.
0: Okay. Hopefully, hopefully,
1: we will not have to say, "We told you so."
0: We told you so. So we both agree that the conflict would continue. Absolutely. But yeah, and there is a chance of escalation. But I don't think we we both believe that the escalation escalation is uh, that real. Probably, like, going to be protracted conflict.
1: I honestly think, I honestly think, like, you know, just from my perspective watching this, I think there's no way that you will have uh, an open ra- russian NATO war. But then again, looking back at history, all of the major wars from the past few hundred years, before they broke out, everybody said, there's no way there's going to be a war. True. That's some, That's a new... Uh, factor in the equation, so that's maybe something that will hold us back, but we'll see. Nuclear weapons are still fairly new in human history. We don't have too much material yeah, 70 to work.
0: Yeah, That's true, and yeah. So hopefully, uh, it's
1: a major stabilizing factor.
0: But it's also still back to normal for Europe. We've lived through the conflict for almost like all. Like, all the history of Europe is the history of war. It is yes. So.
1: Back to normal.
0: Back to normal. Sadly. (laughs) Sadly. Thank you very much. As always. See each other, I guess, in the next episode. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Next year.